Well, thank you, Jay. And it's always a, a, a privilege and a blessing to be able to come and open the Word of God um, with you. And uh, thank you for the opportunity this morning. I don't, I don't take this lightly. I count it a privilege to be here this morning, to be amongst the saints here. And I bring you greetings from uh, Grace Church of the Valley. There's some of you up there too. That's great. So I'll try and remember you're up there and, and look at you. Okay. That's good. Um, yeah, I, I've been uh, certainly blessed to have known your pastor, Jay, uh, over many years, and uh, Jay has come and spoken at some of our uh, men's retreats, men's uh, uh, conferences, and and uh, been a, a brother in the Lord, and I thank you, Jay, for that, and um, I know that the Lord has knit our hearts together in, in ministry, and so it's a joy to be here to see what God is doing. Uh, we've already worshipped the Lord this morning. We've sung some amazing songs and we've been reminded of his greatness and his glory and his power uh, that he rules and reigns and he does as he pleases. And so as we continue our worship this morning, I want you to go to the word of God and turn to first uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. As you're turning there, the purpose of uh, this message is to uh, call each and every one of us this morning to a greater love for and an investment in the Word of God. Because without this, without the Word of God, which is, is, uh, which is eternal, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Without that Word, uh, the church could not be built. Uh, this is... Uh, this is critical for the church uh, to know and to put into practice the Word of God. Otherwise, churches just become social clubs. Uh, they may be religious social clubs, but nonetheless, they, they are just that. They have a reputation of being the church, or even as it says in Revelation, being alive. But in fact, in God's eyes, and God looks at the heart of a church, he looks at the hearts of each one of you this morning, and he sees whether you are alive in him or you are dead. This is the call this morning. And so as we go to this call, would you join me and let's just ask God to work amongst us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, which indeed is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And I thank you that it is uh, more precious to us than gold or silver. That is, the psalmist could say he panted after the word of God, that he longed to spend time in your word, that your word uh, was a place of investment, not only in time, but for eternity. For in your word, we come to know you, Lord. We come to know your purposes. We come to know your plans. We see the great redemptive plan unfolding before us. We see your love, your mercy, your grace, your holiness, your justice, your power, and God, your word reveals to us that we are in desperate need, need of you, need of direction, need of revival, need of renewal and encouragement. And it's your word that revives the soul. It's your word that sustains us in the ministry you've called us to. 
And so, God, we would ask that you would raise in our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, even today, that you would raise up your word to its rightful place. Bless this word to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to ask you this morning a question. What, what gave Martin Luther, a 15th century monk, the strength to not recant his faith in Jesus Christ and his teachings of justification by faith alone before an intimidating council, the, the Diet of Worms or Worms in April 1521? What gave Martin Luther that strength? Well, the answer is very simple the authoritative and all-sufficient Word of God. Luther declared this as he stood before the council. He said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive, listen to this, to the Word of God. I cannot... And I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do none other. God help me. Amen. God used this man, whose conscience was taken captive to the word of God, to ignite a reformation in a, in a church that had for hundreds and hundreds of years been in darkness. Uh, he used this man to bring forth the word to impact people's lives. And through the, the, the uh, printing and the communication means of that word to bring people alive to the Lord once again. Now, when it comes to the mission of the church... I see three components. There's you, the church. There's us who are gathered here this morning, the local church, the body of believers, the ones who send out missionaries. And then there are the missionaries. Good to have some of you amongst us this morning. I trust you're encouraged by the conference. These men and these women are called to leave their own people. They're called to go to a different people group, often a people whose language they have to learn, a culture they know nothing of, and as we heard this morning, even in a difficult place where there's much opposition, persecution. And then there's a third category, and that is those who are being evangelized, those who are hearing the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and are being saved. Now, for the church to be effective, for the mission of the church to actually be effective, it must be founded and built upon the Word of God, period. It's not the Word of God plus. It's the Word of God alone. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. That brings spiritual life. It's not that we don't do other things. It's not that other things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But unless we are about making known the truth about God and his plans and purposes for this age, we are dead. 
ineffective. The church must have a desire for sound doctrine. It must know that the church lives in a particular time and period of time that the apostle Paul said to Timothy will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth to myths. To myths. Now the missionary, so that's the church. We, we need to hold fast to the word of God. The missionary, in order to endure, in order to fulfill their calling, must have nothing to do with old worldly fables and worldly wisdom, but must be nourished on the words of faith. You will not survive as a missionary. You will not last in the field if you are not constantly being nourished on the words of faith. I know you know this. This is not news to you. For the unbeliever, the issue there is their salvation. And unless we preach the word of the gospel, they will not be saved. Oh, they may be changed on the outside. We may come up with a some kind of therapeutic Jesus who adds we add to their life and it changes their behavior a little bit and we get into all of that kind of stuff. But unless the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the Word of God, brings life and regeneration, then they remain dead in their sins, headed to hell. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen, For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, the Bible contains all the truth necessary for blessings in salvation and for blessings in life that the church of Jesus Christ might be established and built up upon the foundation of the preaching of Christ and that the church itself would be the pillar and the support of the truth, the buttress of the truth. That's who we are. And so this morning, you've come to a building And you've either come as the church or you've come as one looking on to the church. You're either saved and in Christ and giving him the glory this morning or you're lost and you're seeking the answer. The answer's in God's word. The word of God points us to the truth concerning God's redemptive plan. Now, the Bible, therefore, contains everything that's necessary for life and godliness. Now, we're not claiming when we say that, that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. We all know that the Scripture has little or nothing to say about the human DNA structure, car engine repairs, rules of Chinese grammar, or English grammar for that matter, or rocket science. The Bible doesn't mention and deal with those things. However, 
the Bible alone is the only source of objective revelation from God to man as to how we, as those who are created in the image and likeness of God, should live our lives to the honor and glory of God. It is therefore sufficient for all matters of life and faith and practice. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired by God. So we can trust it 100% to guide us in all matters of salvation and living, Christian living. Scripture, therefore, is the highest and supreme authority on any matter on which it speaks. Scripture is the more sure word of God. And it stands, it stands head and shoulders above every other truth claim. And this brings us to our text this morning. Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 through 6. Let me give you some context. The Israelites are about to enter the promised land. And Moses is declaring the word of God to this new generation. He is expanding on the commandments, the Ten Commandments, in order to give this congregation, this massive group of people, some two million people, to give them the truth concerning how to live in a new land that they were about to go in and possess. He was going to teach them and guide them in regards to the civil and the ceremonial and the personal matters of life. In Deuteronomy 1 through 4, we have the historic summary of what happened from the time that the nation of Israel were redeemed and led out from slavery in Egypt until entering the promised land. In chapter 5, uh, chapter 5 records the Ten Commandments. Chapters 6 through 9, however, are a serious call to take the Word of God seriously. Listen to these words. Chapter 6, verse 4. Actually, we'll go back to verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. To do what? Verse 1, this is the commandment and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Be careful to do them. And it may, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. If you want the blessing of God in your life, dear believer, you must lay hold of the word of God and obey it, treasure it, love it. Let it fill you. Let it be at home in you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read, verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. I'm actually going to read from the NASB. You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to you to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. 
and he let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. And thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. This passage begins in verse 1 by again repeating the phrase or the statement, be careful to obey the commands of the Lord so that you, so that you will live, multiply in and possess the land that God promised you, promised your forefathers in fact. And we know why that wasn't a reality for them because they didn't listen to the word of God and they didn't submit and they didn't obey and therefore they wandered around for 40 years in a wilderness. Now, I want to draw out from this text four blessings of God's Word, of knowing and applying that Word. And and I want to apply these to uh, the timeless blessings, these timeless blessings to the mission of the church. And I'm, I'm being broad here because I recognize, yes, there are missionaries in our midst, but there is also a lot of others. And while we're all on a mission, not all of us are missionaries. I get that. I understand that. But all of us need to be reminded where our strength comes from, where our direction comes from. And so we need to know where our blessing is, and it's found in the Word. And the first blessing is this. I want you to see it there in verse 1. The Scriptures reveal, do they not, the faithfulness of our God. The Scriptures reveal the faithfulness of God. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you. Notice God is the one leading them in the wilderness. Why? To humble them. Why is that necessary? Anyone want to put a hand up? (laughs) We know why that's necessary because we are naturally prideful. We're self-sufficient. We want to do things our way. We're bent on going against the truth of God's word. We think we're wiser than we really are. And we seek in all of the things that we do, sadly, our own glory, and we ignore the reality of the one who is all glorious and in whose glory we were created. You know, we have a a kind of weird way of viewing ourselves. It reminds me a little bit of the story of the elephant and the flea. Not F-L-E-E, but F-L-E-A. You know, those little things that bite you. Well, the elephant and the flea were walking across the bridge and the flea says to the elephant, did you see how we shook the bridge? (laughs) Like the flea, We want to take the fame and the glory that belongs to God. We want to think that we somehow do something. Listen, if it's not God in you, working through you, you can do nothing. Jesus said, without me, you are nothing and can do nothing. These are sobering statements, aren't they? But they're important in this day day and age of selfism. 
self-esteem, self-exaltation, self-sufficiency. Just keep on. This You can just keep on. It's all around us, and it's within us. We need to die to self. We need to crucify self daily. Take up a cross and follow Christ. And since we're prone to be prideful, God uses wilderness experiences and trials that are beyond us to remind us we're not in control, that he is, and that those trials are there for the purpose of forcing you and me to bend the knee in humble submission to him and his words, his commands. If you're a Christian here this morning, the commands of God are not a burden to you because you love him. And if you love me, Jesus says, you will what? Obey me. Obey my commands. And so we need to be, we need to be quick to humble ourselves. Jesus said, whoever humbles himself as a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 4. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. That's not a good place to be. It's better to humble ourselves than be humbled. And he says, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. James 4.10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. First Peter 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? Because God is opposed to the prouds. But he gives grace to the humble. And that grace is his effectual power that transforms lives. It's the grace of God that transforms you and me in the first instance from dead to life, from darkness to light, from, from hell to heaven. It's, it's the truth of God's word that does that through his grace. But when we humble ourselves and we allow God's grace to work through us, and the way we see that is by simply accepting Firstly, God's definition of us, and secondly, allowing God's word to guide and direct us. When we do that, the grace of God then begins to spread and work out through us, and people's lives beyond us get changed as well. This is what God was trying to build into the nation of Israel as a whole. They're in a desert, two million of them, with no water, no source of, of food, no, uh, no, no source of water, no food, no wild animals uh, to kill, no means of keeping themselves alive. They needed in that point in time to trust God and his resources, not their own. Israel was really doing a pretty good job at this time that, that Moses is, is uh, writing here or declaring these things. The previous generation had died off in the wilderness and a new generation had experienced for 40 years God's daily provision and had heard of the wonders done by God in the land of Egypt. And they're excited. They're anticipating going into the promised land, the land of their inheritance. And God wants them to remember his faithfulness. We too need to remember God's faithfulness. And we too need to remember as these people, the emptiness and the barrenness of our lives without God. And yet how faithful God was to draw us to himself 
We all have stories. We all have accounts of how God's presence uh, was with us and he drew us and was pulling us towards himself by the grace that he displayed in Christ until ultimately we bent the knee, surrendered, repented of our sin and believed on him. And hallelujah, what a transformation uh, that day was for us. But look down at verse 16 of chapter 8. He says, in the wilderness, he fed you manna, that's God fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. None of us likes wilderness experiences or trials. They're not fun, but they're good for us. Because ultimately, as we surrender to the Lord, his goodness And his grace produce a life of godliness, of righteousness for the glory of his great name. As Hebrews 12, 5 through 8 says, all discipline, no discipline is pleasant. But but afterwards, after the discipline, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is the lesson God wants us to learn. He alone, by his word alone, is able and faithful to meet us in our deepest need. You can trust him. I mean, think about the early church. What was the source of the dynamic growth of the first century church? And most of us would quickly say, well, it was the outpouring of the Spirit. And that's true. But what does the Spirit do and how does He operate? He uses the Word of God. It's, it's the ministry of the Spirit to illuminate the Word of God to our hearts and our minds. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin, of righteousness and judgment to come. All of the elements of the, of the gospel message and bring salvation. It's the Word of God that brought growth in the first century church. I think of the the statement Jesus made right before his crucifixion. He prays to the Father for his disciples that, that, that the Father would sanctify his disciples in the truth. He says, your word is truth. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus commissions the disciples to make go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In Acts chapter 2, 13, in the early church, under the outpouring of the Spirit, the apostles were declaring in Acts 2, the mighty deeds and works of God. In Acts 2, 42, the early believers are said to be continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In Acts 5.20, opening the prison doors for the apostles, an angel commanded those men. He said, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, he states the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Following the death of Herod, Luke records in Acts 12 verse 24 that the word of the Lord continued to grow and to multiply. Following remarkable conversions and the rejection of the demonic practices in Ephesus, it is recorded that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Acts 19.20. In Acts 20, verse 25 through 27, Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, and, I, and now behold, I know that all of you, all among you whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. And he goes on to say, I did not shrink 
from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Well, you can just keep on going through the New Testament. Paul was always eager, was he not, as he says in Romans 1.15, to preach the gospel. In the letter to the Philippian church, he, he, he calls them, he exhorts them uh, to, to stand firm with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He said of them, he said, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. I remember my dad used to say to me, son, if you will not accept the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God over your life, you will live your life like a ship being tossed in the ocean with no port to go to and no anchor to hold you firm. And he was right. Paul goes on and says to the Philippian believers, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. How can I stop there? Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ, what? Dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Listen, I get why I'm here this morning. Believe me. I understand what God is doing here in terms of my life, but what about you? The the, the church isn't about me. Ministry in this church at Burbank isn't about me. It's about you. You know, sometimes we think, and I think John McCarthy used to say this, and I love to mention this because it's so true. I used to think this way. The guy at the front, he's the guy that's on the stage of life, and you're all observing, and you're all critiquing this message. And you're trying to figure out, does he come from New Zealand or Australia or South Africa? <laughs> Let's get that one right. I'm a Kiwi. Let's come to America. I call myself an Kiwi. Ameri- How's that? But listen, I'm not on the stage. You are. You're on the stage of life. And the, and, and the, the scripture is so clear that Jesus walks amongst us. And he examines us as a church. Where's your heart this morning? Is it full of the word of God? Are you, are you ready this morning as you've come together to, to warn, to admonish, to, to speak, to teach, to bring all wisdom to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? I love that. It's not like you walk up to someone and hit them over the head with the Bible. It's, it's, it's that you come and out of the overflow of your hearts based on the truth of your heart, what you've learned from the word, you communicate that with one another. And you encourage one another. So much could be said. We're going to move on. You're going to kick me out of here. The second blessing I want you to see, the second blessing is simply this, that the Scriptures provide the correct diagnosis of the heart. Look back in Deuteronomy 8 and the second part of verse 2. He says, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. You know, in the same way that a skilled doctor diagnoses an illness in a patient, God here is seen as diagnosing the hearts of his people to see what was in their hearts. Would they remember their past deliverances by God? And would they trust him enough to keep his commandments without complaint as they went forward into this promised land? Would they have faith? 
in the word of God, or would they, like their forefathers, let fear rule them and be incapacitated and come under the judgment of God? Now Moses, in explaining this, wants this second generation from Egypt, these Jewish these Jewish people who are under the covenant to reflect on the fact that it, it was absolutely impossible to have lived for 40 years in the desert without a stable source of food or water in the natural sense, that all that they had was given to them. They had not only survived in the wilderness, they had survived for 40 years And he wants them to remember that because that takes them back to why were we here in the first place? They were there because the first generation grumbled against Moses and God and disobeyed him and and rejected the word and the promise that God was going to go before them and take the land, all except two men, Caleb and Joshua. God in his grace spared those men and gave them the strength at 80 that they had at 40. Don't let fear rule your hearts. Have faith in the promises of God. And I know that's not easy. There's much anxiety in the world today. Some of you may have just lost all your savings in the bank that just collapsed. I hope not. But how many of us know of people whose homes have been swept away in floods, whose whose jobs have been just disappeared through through whatever's going on in the political arena, the social arena? How many of us have lost, lost jobs simply because we stood up and proclaimed Christ? And believe me, pastors are not devoid of that. And there's much fear. There's much fear about the future. But when we know the God who holds the future, we can trust him. When we know the God of the past, who kept his people, who secured them, who loved them, who was gracious to them even in their disobedience, when we know that that God's word will be fulfilled regardless of our, our, our lack of obedience, our lack of faithfulness, and we know these realities that what God promises, he will fulfill, we can trust him in the present and we can trust him for the future. He wanted them to remember that just three days after the mighty deliverance from Pharaoh and his army through the, the pathway that God created through the Red Sea that they came to Marah and they found the water was undrinkable. And he wants them to remember that that first generation cried out bitterly in thirst, what shall we drink? And the Lord showed Moses a tree, threw it in the waters and those bitter waters became sweet. And there was made for them a statute and a regulation that day. And there it says God tested them. And God says through Moses, if you will give earnest, listen to this, earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you 
that, I, that which I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. What a promise. What a blessing. He wants them to remember that in the wilderness of sin, a couple of months after leaving Egypt, they discovered that all their food supplies had been exhausted. What were they going to do? How would they respond to this new challenge? Would they live in the light of the sufficiency of God who can supply all our needs according to his riches? Our riches in Christ Jesus. No. No, they had a very small view of God. It seems crazy, doesn't it? But it's true. It's real. Their response was to remember the the food that they ate back in Egypt. And all that yummy meat and that that tasty bread. And they began to grumble against the Lord saying, would that we had died in Egypt. In that moment, they revealed their pride, their self-reliance, and their failure to depend upon the source of all things, depend upon the promises of God. Yet he graciously provides them manna day after day after day raining down from the heavens. And what was God looking for in their lives? Well, he's looking for a willingness for them to obey him out of a genuine trust in his character, in his person, that he would take care of them. Does God ever lie to you? Has he ever lied to you? Has he ever said he will do something and not done it? No, God cannot lie. And so for us as believers, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. That whatever God had purposed before the foundation of the world to call out a people for for his own glory, for the praise of his glory, what God had purposed for that group of people for all eternity will come to pass. And so God wants us to have a strong and a humble trust in his word. And the questions this morning that come to us is, will will I let go of my prideful self-trust and look to God for help? Will you look to the impossible and know that that's just a place where all things are possible for God? He's the God of the impossible. It's what he wants us to, to know about him. There's no, there's no limits to our God in that sense of his will. And when it comes to his will, he will perform that which he desires to do. No one can stand in his way. We need to grow some spiritual muscle like this second generation had as they, as they considered and watched and saw the graciousness of God and his kindness And still there was the hope of entering the promised land. It's never too late to change. It's never too late to submit your heart to the promises of God, to trust him. It's it's never too late to consider it all joy when you are encountering various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. As James says, and, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
you know, verse 5 of our text in Deuteronomy 8, we see that God is disciplining them through these trials as a father does a son. And he says, thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord is disciplining you just as a, as a man disciplines his own son. What kind of man is that? Well, that's a man who cares for his children. One who doesn't discipline his children, the scripture says, is, 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 uh, is, is treating his children as if they're not his own. I mean, we all have kids, those of us who are married and, and have been blessed with that, those of us who have children, we know that if you leave them to their own devices, they will get in trouble. We need to train them, discipline them, raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God hasn't ceased to care for us. No, a thousand times. No, the issue isn't with God. The issue is with us. You might be in a very difficult spot right now, but don't blame God for that. Rather, seek to know the will and purpose of God in that trial and embrace the goodness and the grace of God to go through that trial. As a young man, I was a very angry, bitter young man, a slave, an absolute slave to my anger. And when I got saved... God taught me this lesson that when things don't go well, let me put that again. When things don't go the way you, Andy, want them to go, remember I am doing two things. I'm either sanctifying you through this trial or I'm providing you an opportunity to minister to me, for me. Think about your trials that way. I'm looking for glory, my glory, to be manifested in your life. And there's only two ways that can happen, through transformation and through proclamation. It changed my life. I don't know who taught me that, but one day in heaven I'll find out and I'll just hug that guy. He has no idea. And the amount of opportunities I had to share the gospel when my car broke down or I got a flat tire or, or I missed the bus or the train or the plane or whatever it was is unbelievable. Why? Because I'm looking for it. Because in that moment, God's sovereign and he's got me right where he wants me. Ha. God is so good. Let's move on. There's a third blessing I want you to see. And that is that the scriptures illuminate our understanding of God's infinite supply. Verse 3a, he humbled you, he let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. Now, bread here speaks to that which is temporal. Bread goes moldy. Well, in America, it doesn't seem to go moldy for a long, long time, but It generally gets there at some point, unless it's a McDonald's hamburger bun. It's not bread, you know that, it's just plastic. No, I don't know. I don't know. I'll probably get shot for that later, but it goes moldy. It's temporary. And and so we need to go out and get some more. And and so we go to the market, the supermarket, and we buy more. But really, is that where bread comes from, the supermarket? I've met children that think that's true. No, it doesn't come from the supermarket. It comes from the ground and a seed that was planted, grain that grows in the field with the help of the soil's nutrients with water that God provides and sunshine. And God does all of that and it produces 
tenfold, twenty, thirty, forty, hundred, whatever fold, and we take that grain, we grind it, and then we do our, our specialty with it, and we produce bread. And yet we forget so quickly, and, and we seldom give thanks to the God who provided your meal for you this morning. I live in Central Valley. 30% of all food supply, vegetables, meats, milk, cheese, all the good stuff comes from the Central Valley for America. 30%. You know, so if there's a rebellion in the Central Valley and we build a big wall and cut you guys off, you're going to go very hungry. No, God will sustain you. He will keep you. You know, Israel, think about this nation. They had nothing to bring to the table. They're in a desert. There's nowhere to get food. There's no McDonald's. There's no Burger King. There's no local market to go to. There's no good soil to grow anything in. And probably they didn't even have any seeds. I mean, who has seeds as a slave? But God wants to see them that he is the ultimate provider, not only in time, but in eternity. Never before had there been food coming, raining down out of the heavens in this form that we know as manna, some kind of sweet, sweet kind of bread-like substance that, that had everything we needed, uh, that, that the nation needed to be sustained. You see, what's the lesson we learn from that? Well, God doesn't need the soil. <laughs> he doesn't need soil to sustain us. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need sunshine. God doesn't need any of that stuff. What does that tell you? That tells you he's the sustainer. He's the source of all life. And when Jesus came into this world as God, the son, eternal son and human flesh, he came as the, the, the one who is the giver and the sustainer of all life. Let's not forget that. Now notice this, God doesn't just provide for that one day or one week or one month, but he provides for the entire generation. You know, sometimes in, in, in Christian ministry, I've seen this where older men, you know, they, they cark it, they, they have a massive heart attack and drop dead, and everybody goes, oh no, what are we going to do now? My pastor's died. Listen, your pastor hasn't died. He sits at the right hand of his father in heaven. And he watches over you and he cares for you and he sustains you. Second Corinthians 9, 8 says, Our God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower, notice that, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What's Paul doing here? He's saying, look, learn the lesson in the practical temporal world of what God is wanting to do in the spiritual world. God wants to blow every seat in this place out with people, with bodies. God wants to fill this church with people hungry to know him, hungry to worship him, and hungry to obey him. And it begins with you this morning. It begins with you humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God 
and submitting to his word. The scriptures point us to the blessings of the faithfulness of God. They point us to the blessings of the correct diagnosis of the human heart. They point us to the blessing of God's infinite provision. But fourthly and lastly, the scriptures are the means of eternal life. Physical bread does not provide food for the soul. Listen listen to what it says at the end of verse 3. Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. A contrast is being made between the temporal here and the eternal. God is making it clear that our lives and our futures are dependent on his words. doesn't get any clearer than this. So we're on a mission. And it's the word of God that enables us to fulfill that mission. God's word is eternal because God is eternal. Jesus passed the test in the wilderness when Satan came to him. Uh, and, he, and he passed in the wilderness where the Israelites failed in the wilderness. Jesus humbled himself and believed the truth of God's word above the pressing needs of the moment. When Satan said to him, take these stones and turn them into bread to satisfy your hunger. And he said, no. And he quotes this very passage. Man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God, by his word, spoke the universe and everything in it into existence. God, by his word, sustains everything. God, by his word, brings forth salvation to all who believe in his son. John saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, we need Life, because the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are without life. We're flatlined spiritually. And the only way to get a heartbeat again spiritually is to repent of our sins, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and hand ourselves over to his will and purpose. God gives us his word not so we can earn our salvation, Not so we can be good enough to go to heaven, but so that we can know him and in knowing him become vessels that express acceptable worship, worship in spirit and in truth, that we can love him by obeying him, that we can be ministers of righteousness on his behalf, that we can be those who are ambassadors, heralds of a greater king and a greater kingdom than what the natural eye sees. And for those of you who are missionaries here, God bless you, praise God for you, for giving up your lives to that end. But please let all of us examine carefully what we do with our lives uh, and what we are trusting for growth in our own life and in the lives of others. It must come back to the word of God. And so the mission of the church, both locally and overseas, is therefore absolutely dependent on the word of God a word that points us to the blessings of the faithfulness of God, that points us to the blessings of a correct diagnosis of the human heart, to the blessing of God's infinite provisions for us, and the blessing of eternal life. Jesus said, come to me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. He who eats of me will not go hungry. He says, I am the Living water, he who drinks of me will never thirst again. May we leave here today determined to study the written word in order to know the living word, 
to obey this word and enjoy the blessings that come when we walk according to his words. May God bless us in that ministry and that direction as we leave here today. Join me in prayer. Father, what a joy to open your word this morning and to consider Moses' words to the nation of Israel. And Lord, to draw lessons from that for us today, to, to understand that you are a faithful God and you provide all we need. Bless this word, I pray to every heart here this morning, that we may trust you, love you, that we may treasure your words and your promises, and that we may become anchored to the one who is eternal, who has ordained our past, our present, and our future. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.